Good morning, Eastgate Bible Church. It's exciting to to be here again today as we begin a new book of the Bible in our sermon series. We are preaching through 1 Samuel starting this morning. Um, And it's also exciting to think that potentially in four weeks' time, we may be able to start even meeting face-to-face. I might actually be able to see your faces uh, instead of a camera in four weeks' time. There's still a lot of things to be uh, worked out regarding what we may need to do in order for that to happen, uh, but we'll be uh, keeping you in the loop and communicating uh, as we work through each of those things. But as we come before the Lord in prayer, as we begin this new series, asking that God would use it uh, to build us, to form us, and to help us love Him and appreciate Him more. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Uh, We thank You that You are a God who reveals Yourself. You didn't just create and stand back and look at what You made. Uh, Lord, You wanted to be intimately involved with your creation. You sustain it, you uphold your creation. And even though because we were created by you and we belong to you, we should acknowledge you as our king. We so have failed to do that. And Lord, we thank you that all of your word is a testimony to the King Jesus Christ whom you have sent to deal with the problem of our sin to reconcile us to God. And Lord, as we pray, as we work through First Samuel, not only this morning, but uh, throughout the remainder of this year, uh, that you would be forming in us something more of the character and nature of Christ, uh, that we might be heralding that good news to those who do not know you. Uh, so work in us and through us by your Holy Spirit and your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if we have any former school captains amongst our Eastgate family. If I had people in front of me, I could ask you. We could kind of interact around that. Now, I'm not going to drop the bombshell on you and tell you that I used to be a school captain. I certainly wasn't. I I think if I'd put my hand up, the teachers probably would have said no. Um, I certainly didn't desire to be. But the one I always found really interesting were primary school captains. Not so much the role, but thinking more in lines of five-year-olds to 12-year-olds, by what measure would they gauge if someone is a good leader? Well, at Barrel Primary School, where I went, it seemed to work that if you were good at sport, you were the school captain. That's just the way it seemed to work. Now, there's a well-known verse from 1 Samuel that gets quoted a lot from chapter 16, verse 7, which says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, one of the reasons why we've chosen to preach through 1 Samuel is not just because I haven't preached an Old Testament book for a while, but that contributes to it but particularly because of the way that 1 Samuel speaks about God's leaders in a time when we are potentially in the next couple of years having some quite serious changes to the leadership within our church. At the half-yearly general meeting just a couple of weeks ago, we had a number of gentlemen who were put forward, who were nominated by the church to undergo training who may become, some of them, the future elders of Eastgate Bible Church. Uh, who were Alon, Matt, Paul, Ian, 
and Sam. And we encourage you to to watch their lives and, and their ministry as they're involved in ministry and pray and seek God's leading for who may be the future leaders here at Eastgate. Because when we look at 1 Samuel, it actually looks at four different leaders along the way throughout the book. We see Eli, Samuel, Saul, and David. And through these interactions, we see from God's perspectives the type of leaders that are valuable and and useful in his service, and also those who are not so much valuable and useful in his service. But before we launch into the book, as we do on any book, there's questions to be asked. The who, what, when and why. Like questions like, who wrote this book? Now, a lot of the books in the Bible, you know who wrote them because their name is in the title. Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah, John wrote John, Luke wrote Luke. So you could be forgiven for thinking that First and Second Samuel must be written by Samuel. Now, there's a reason why that's probably not particularly convincing. Because if you turn to chapter 25, verse 1, you'll read these words. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And it's also clear from chapter 28, verse 3, that Samuel's death took place while Saul was still king. Now, we've all had that trouble back in primary school, maybe even high school, where the teachers have had to tell you, when you're writing something in first person, you can't die and then keep writing about it. And in the same way, if Samuel dies in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1, then you know from verse 2 and all the way through to the end of 2 Samuel, Samuel's not writing these words. So why would it be called 1 and 2 Samuel if he didn't write it? Well, most likely is because Samuel is the key significant figure in the formation of the monarchy of Israel. So who did write it? Well, the reality is we don't exactly know. Most people believe it was somebody who's compiled from various different sources, different historical records that were written around that time. And from what we can read from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 29 to 30, We know there were people writing about these times in the time. Samuel was one of them. Nathan, the the prophet, was one of them. And Gad the seer was another. All of those three wrote during this time. And we can presume, because of the details given in chapter 27, verse 6, that says that Ziglag, who was king in Judah up until this day, that we're talking late 10th century uh, was when these things were finally compiled. They record the events from the end of the book of Judges, roughly around 1050 BC, up until the death of Saul in 1010 BC. Or from a bigger historical perspective, we're talking about things that happened about three years, three three thousand years ago from our perspective, 500 years on from Moses, uh, 300 years after the people had entered into the land of Canaan. But What was the scene like? What was the situation that that this is being written into? The best indication is the final verse of the book of Judges, which immediately precedes the events described in 1 Samuel. The last verse in the book of Judges says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the setting was that everyone was just doing whatever they felt like it. And the indications are in this verse is that the author of Judges seemed to think that if they were to have a king, that would solve some problems. It would maybe turn them back to God. And if we work our way through 1 Samuel, we'll see whether that is true or not. But as we look through chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 11, we will see Hannah's lament in verses 1 to 8, Hannah's passionate prayer in verses 9 to 20, Samuel given to the Lord in verses 21 to 28, and the prayer of a humble servant in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So our first point is Hannah laments, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 1. Now, after we've seen the setting that the nation was basically doing everything which seemed right in their own eyes, with no respect for God, you would expect or anticipate that God is going to bring someone significant onto the scene to restore a people back to God. But there is a shock when you read about Elkanah. There's no connection to a significant historical figure in the Old Testament. He's not from a place of great importance. But often we see in 1 Samuel, God takes the people who are lowly in the eyes of men and exalts them and uses them for his good purposes. And it is often those who are exalted in the eyes of men or even in their own eyes whom God brings low. And the second thing which may shock you about Elkanah is to read that he had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And before you get too carried away about that, you might also be shocked to see how common it was for some of the key characters in the Old Testament to have more than one wife. You've got Esau, you've got Jacob, you've got Saul, Gideon, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, all with multiple wives. Does God approve of multiple wives? Should I go get another one? Well, it's a little bit like the situation with regards to divorce. God never recommended or approved divorce. Remember when Jesus is being asked about Moses apparently commanding a divorce certificate to be given? And Jesus responds by saying, Moses permitted divorce. Why? Because of the hardness of the people. In other words, Moses regulated something that people were going to do because their sinful hearts would pursue it. And the same thing could be said with regards to bigamy or or polygamy. In Deuteronomy 21, there are regulations put around the framework of what happens if someone has multiple wives. So the presumption is that first, Elkanah would have married Hannah, but she being unable to have children, then takes on Peninnah and they hope that they would have children. Now, if you've been reading the biblical narrative from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, by the time you've got here, you've already seen a significant number of women who were initially barren, sometimes barren and old, whom God then not only blesses with a child, but blesses them with a child who has a significant role in God's plan of redemption. So at this point in time, just hearing that she was barren, could be a bit of a light bulb moment. Maybe God 
is doing something, even in the middle of this time, when the people have turned so far away from God. And often these have been key people that have come through barren women. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samson to name just a few. But Hannah, this was a, a key issue of grief. It was a thing of great pain and loss. Made even worse by the taunts of Peninnah, according to verse 6, who would taunt her about it. Her husband, however, Elkanah, is pictured as a godly man who loved his wife. And as they came to sacrifice at the tent of meeting in Shiloh, we are introduced to Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, which we'll look at in more detail next week, where even though they were priests, they were described as worthless men who did not know God. As Elkanah sacrificed, he gave double portion to Hannah because he loved her. There's no doubt she was secure in the love of her husband, but she had a genuine lament that the Lord had closed her womb. And that's a very true perspective from her. The Lord had closed her womb. Her heart desired to have a son. She could have become bitter. She could have cried out, Oh, the injustice, why don't I have a son? Instead, she recognized it is the Lord who closed the womb, and she pours out her heart before the Lord, the Lord of all, with the humble position of a servant. A posture not taken by a number of key figures in the book of 1 Samuel. So let us see Hannah's passionate prayer in verses 9 to 20. Hannah wasn't just disappointed. We're actually told that before Elkanah came and comforted her, she couldn't even eat. She was so distressed. And so husbands, including this husband, that's a reminder not to downplay the power of your love and your care and your concern for your wives. However, Hannah does something that Elkanah himself didn't even do. She poured out her heart before God. She brought the situation that was bringing her great grief and she brought that before the one and only one who could do something about that. You could say that Hannah did what Peter later commanded in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. She humbled herself. She constantly refers to herself as a servant, places her deepest needs before him, her cares. Now, some might read verse 11 and think, uh, I don't know, it sounds like she's being a little bit manipulated, trying to twist God's arm. Let's read those words. It says, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give me your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. You could read that and think, ah, oh, she so badly wants a son that she's trying to bargain with God. If you give me this, I'm going to give you this in return. But it's not so simple as that. You'll notice on three occasions she recognizes that she is 
his servant. He is the Lord. She rightly understands who he is and she rightly understands who she is. And as a result, she humbly casts her care upon the one who is the Lord. But there's more than just an expression of God's sovereignty. There's some phrases used here that remind us back to the Exodus. When she says, speak, look on my affliction and remember your servant. It's the language of Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 6 of the people who were being oppressed in Egypt. Where they call upon saying, remember our affliction, remember your servant. Perhaps here Hannah is showing her deep knowledge of the character of God and what he has done in the past. And he's pleading with God to say, God, I want you to do for me as you have done for your people in the past. As Hannah calls upon the Lord to remember her, he's not kind of suggesting that he's got a short memory or that he's forgotten her. It's a phrase that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. It's an expression where he says the Lord remembered means that he acted for the benefit of his people. She didn't think he was a forgetful God. She describes him as the God of knowledge in chapter 2 verse 3 as she's praying to him. But should God answer this prayer, she promised that this son would be dedicated to God all of his days. Now Eli, who's the high priest, he's watching on, he sees the tears, he sees the lips moving, but he can't hear any words, and he's come to the conclusion, man, this Sheila's off her chops. She's off her face. And he actually even speaks to her to, to that effect. He's probably thinking, this is no place for drunks. Take your goon and get out of here. And what we read in chapter 2 later on, it's quite possible this sort of thing might have been taking place within the place of the tent of meeting. But Hannah humbly responds. She doesn't rebuke him for saying, hey, you've been on the grog. She says, no, I'm not a worthless man, worthless woman. A term which is used of Eli's own sons in chapter 2 are being worthless men who didn't know the Lord. She said, no, I'm not. I'm one who knows the Lord. I'm just pouring out my heart, expressing my grief toward him. Don't consider me worthless. Now, I don't know what happened in Eli, but clearly God has done something to change his perspective from thinking that she is drunk to then saying these words in verse 17. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel will grant your petition that you have made to him. Now all of these elements, there was one who was barren. Now we've got a high priest saying to her, God is going to give her whatever she's been praying for. And he may not even know specifically what it was that she'd been praying. It was certainly enough to turn Hannah's mourning to joy. She may not have been known exactly how it was going to play out, but she certainly had an extent of peace. A peace she probably wouldn't have known had she not poured out her heart and brought her pain before the Lord. So the next day they they worship, they return home. It says Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, that intimate relationship, and she bore a son. Not just and she bore a son, and the Lord remembered. The Lord acted for her benefit in accordance to her request, and she had a son named Samuel. 
a name which means name of God or offspring of God. And Hannah recognizes that this child is not only from God, this child belongs to God. If you had any reservations about Hannah's prayer in verse 11, whether she's twisting God's arm, trying to make things up to manipulate him, this is where it really comes down, where the truth is on the line. Will you dedicate this child to the Lord, as you said? I know I found myself questioning myself in prayer sometimes when I bring something forward a lot in prayer and say, if you do this, I will do this. And I'm starting to question myself, am I really going to do that? If God does this, am I really going to follow through on what I said I'm going to do? It's not like God doesn't really know what's in your heart. He doesn't. It's not like you can trick him and manipulate him. But true to her word, Samuel was dedicated to the Lord's service. He was given to the Lord in our point three in verses 21 to 28. Just think about this. The one thing that deeply grieved Hannah's soul was that she didn't have a son. Now finally she has that one thing that she thought that she needed and not to keep to herself, but to give to the Lord. Now from New Testament, from James's perspective, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Every good thing we have is from God. It belongs to God. We are his stewards. We are to use the things that he entrusts to us for his good purposes. And we would do really well to recognize that everything we have is God's. Say, God, how would you use these things? Now, I'm not just talking about the fickle things that we don't really care about. I mean, even the things that we value and cherish the most intimately. It's not like he's someone you can't trust with things. He's good in all of his ways. And we're told here that once Samuel was weaned, Hannah brought him to the tent of meeting to Eli and presented him before the Lord. Now our presumptions are Samuel could have been about three years old at this point in time. And you could be wondering all sorts of questions that get raised. Does Hannah stay there? She doesn't get it mentioned again after chapter 2. They're questions which we don't really have answered. But one thing is very clear from Elkanah's perspective. He's got one priority. Verse 23, may the Lord establish his word. What word? We haven't had a, a specific statement of a word from the Lord regarding the situation, unless it was something that, that Eli knew or something Hannah knew that's not recorded in here. Maybe there's a connection um, to David after he's been told that he, he would have a kingdom that would endure forever. This is how he prayed in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Now we're left in the dark about what Elkanah, Eli, or Hannah may have known. But what we do know this now is that from this child Samuel would come the monarchy, would come David, and eventually would come that eternal David, that eternal king, that Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Hannah brings this child to Eli, recalls the incident. Remember, remember before when I was here and I was pouring out my heart before God, you thought I was off my chops? 
She says in verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. There's no hint of hesitation at all. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. This is a woman who knows the Lord. This is a woman who could teach Eli's own sons who were serving as priests a thing or two about the God whom they claim to serve. But the prayer which immediately proceeds is one of the most beautiful prayers in the Old Testament in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2. In these 10 verses, this prayer says so much about the nature of God, His sovereignty, His justice, His redemption. It's another example of the prayer of a humble servant poured out before the God whom she loves. In a time when people were hoping that a king would come on the scene to draw people back to God, she prays to and recognises the true king and also the, the anointed coming king who would be an everlasting king, who would judge of all people. Expressing first of David and then the David who was to come, Jesus Christ, who would judge the living and the dead. As we see through 1 Samuel, this is the God who exalts the lowly, who doesn't look upon people the way which we see him, he looks upon the heart. He raises up the lowly and he brings those who are proud and who think too highly of themselves. This is the God who achieves all of his good purposes not according to or confined to the ways in which man would do things. And so as we begin this book of 1 Samuel, we're off to a good start. We're, we're pointed towards a, a king who would be coming. We are seeing God working in amongst the people who had formerly were just doing whatever they seemed right in their own eyes. Whatever you see going on your own, God is at work. And it would seem the only fitting place to close would be to pray that very prayer that Hannah prayed. Lord, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she has many is forlorn. The Lord kills, and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor, and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillar of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.